Welcome to Move the Needle, the human performance podcast with your hosts, Hunter Eisenhower and Mike Sullivan. First and foremost, Connor, appreciate your time today. You know, we both we both Thank appreciate you. you having on. Obviously, we talked we talked about like a year ago, probably or so. That's Hunter and I were both at Davis. Um, so good to talk to you again. And we're both like fans of, of the content that you put out, you know, very wide ranging, very detailed. Um, so we kind of wanted to go through kind of like a broad to, to narrow viewpoint for you, kind of like when you first kind of get athletes in big rocks, and then as you kind of get into more detailed approaches. So that's kind of where we want to take this. First of all, though, I would love to hear just a little bit about your background on how you kind of developed for pinnacle performance and how you've gotten to where you are with your model and your niche right now. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I actually started out wanting to be a strength and conditioning coach in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's really what I wanted to do when I very first started. Um, basketball has always been my passion. And I started off on that route. So I went to Oregon State. I worked with a lot of the teams there. Ironically, basketball was actually the hardest one to break into. I actually didn't end up working with team I ended up working with the baseball team and so I started to realize that I didn't care that much about being in basketball I just wanted to work with people that were really good at what they do and that was really cool to work for the base because that strength coach Chris Anderson was the only person other than another internship I did that practiced PRI in meaningful way uh, within a fitness context So I had two back-to-back internships really early on. Um, They happened to be the only two people in the whole state that really did it at that time. And so I was like, okay, there's something a little bit different about this. Uh, So I started to stray away a little bit from wanting to do strictly performance stuff, but I still had my eggs in that basket. So I ended up doing an internship after that in Arizona at Exos. And that was a cool experience. But the more you work with professional athletes, as I'm sure, Hunter, you understand this, like the more you realize like it's not quite what you think it is it it's not exactly you don't have as much control you don't have as much influence on them as athletes because you know they have so much other stuff going on in their lives so I was like okay you know well do I keep doing this or do I pursue a slightly different route because I had a pretty bad back injury at the time from ego deadlifting and so I, I figured okay you know I feel way better because of this PRI stuff. So I'm going to figure some way out to, you know, a niche here. So I ended up working for people that teach the methodology. And so I moved back to Oregon, did some online stuff for a while that took off way more than I ever could have expected. And then um, I got enough capital to open up this gym. And now I have it here in the city of Portland, Oregon. And I work with a wide variety of people. Um, I work with basketball overseas basketball athletes i work with gen pop i work with grandma grandpa i work with um youtubers i work with everyone a variety of of ranging populations Um, but what's cool is that i have both the online and in-person business the in-person business really keeps the sword sharp allows me to experiment this is my laboratory but at the end of the day the online business is what brings in the revenue so that's where my main focus and most of my hours go into that's sweet that's sweet i love that i mean it's super super wide-ranging which is like the goal, I think, for most people on the private side. I know for myself, college to private now, it's just like how many different modes of things you can get your hands on is like the, that's like the, the magic formula for success in the private side, it feels like to me. So when you get, uh, when you get like an athlete, let's say like a high school or college athlete in for the first time, and they just walk into your gym, 
you don't know a whole lot about them, what is your assessment process like for them? And what are like some of the main blocks that you want to kind of hone in on for them? Yeah, I think uh, I'm pretty fortunate and also in unique circumstances because when someone comes to me, they have a certain expectation of what they're going to get, which I think is unique. But I also like that because the stuff I do is different than what you're going to get at you know your average gym or performance training center. So people have an idea of like, okay, this doesn't feel good, but I still want to train. Like I'm the guy you come to for that. So when I first have someone, I need to hear, you know, what are you dealing with? Cause they're, they're going to be dealing with something inevitably. And then I need to take them through a general movement assessment. So I'm going to start off with very, very general stuff and I can zoom in if I need to. So I need to see basic movements. You know, I need to see them squat, I need to see them touch their toes. I need to see them do a basic straight leg raise. I need to see what their hip rotation is, all that basic stuff. And then I need to see them do more context specific stuff. So I need to see them jump. I need to see them run. I need to see them cut, et cetera. But if they don't have the basic stuff first, then I don't concern myself with seeing the really, you know, sexy movements before that, because if they don't have, if they can't achieve a very basic movement on a table, then they go and try to, I don't know, let's say they try to do something that requires hip internal rotation and some other upright context, like a cut, then I know that they're going to probably be using some strategy to find that missing internal rotation when they're doing that movement. Does that make sense? So it's like, if they don't have it basically on the table, then they're going to be finding it some other way when the demands are really high. So I use that as a starting point to understand what's happening when they actually move. So I need to get that first. And I find that there's a higher than expected correlation between getting changes with those basic measurements and integrating them into upright stuff. Most people feel a pretty good difference immediately, which a lot of people make the argument, well, how is that nearly the same thing? Let's say you're opening up space for that person to be able to move better in their already established movement patterns. So that's where I think the carryover happens. And that's why I think people tend to see pretty immediate changes in how they feel. Even if their movement doesn't change that much, it tends to feel better. So I want to make sure that those things are identified and whatever limitations are identified are there on the table. And then it's like, okay, now when I see you move, I can make more sense of that because I see what the gaps are. And depending on what part of the movement looks good, what doesn't look good, I can kind of infer how you're finding the things you don't have via compensations. And are those compensations a good thing or a bad thing? I think that's entirely dependent. So for one person, it might be like, you're really locked up, but you move pretty well and you don't have any big injury history. I might not intervene with that person as much. Whereas someone might move decently, but they have an extensive, you know, lower limb injury history. And I'm like, okay, well, we probably need to do something about that because there's a clear limitation here. And, you know, you can still improve in your movement and you can get some movement options back as you do that. So that's the type of person I'd probably intervene on. Does that make sense? So I need to make sure basically a long-winded answer would be like, what do you have in a very basic environment and how are you filling in the gaps of what you don't have when you're actually moving like an athlete? Yeah, I like that. Um, I recently kind of went down a biomechanics Alex effort type rabbit hole. Hmm. And one, one 
concept that I really took from that is don't train in a range of motion that like you don't have access to. So if somebody is limited in shoulder flexion and you have them doing whatever vertical push you have them doing, like they probably are compensating in a certain spot in order to achieve that movement. Is that similar? Am I, am I hearing you correctly on kind of what you just broke down? In a sense? Yeah. So like if, if someone has issues, I think that's more relevant. So like, let's say someone has a shoulder injury and they're doing something like an incline dumbbell bench press Mm -hmm. i don't want them probably moving outside of their measured shoulder flexion range because at that point they're just going to move their entire back they're going to orient their whole spine to make room for that shoulder flexion they don't have but if you have doesn't have a lot of issues you know is it okay if they move beyond their shoulder flexion a little bit i think that's generally probably okay it's just like you know at, at what point are we being you know too myopic about something i think there's a balance to be had and I think that if someone has issues, that's totally relevant. But if someone has less issues and it's like, eh, I'm not going to sweat it if they're 15 degrees outside of their active hip flexion or, you know, shoulder flexion. Makes sense. Now, my question for you is following up on this. So you get somebody on the table and you, you mentioned straight raise, you mentioned hip internal rotation. What are kind of like your big rock assessments that you have on the table to like what's your checklist of assessments that you go through? I'd say the big rocks, like I I take a lot of different things, but I'd say the big rocks that are pretty consistent are going to be like an Ober's test because that's going to tell me how neutral your hips are. That's basically like laying someone on their side in a 90, 90 position, taking the top leg, bringing it back into full hip hip extension, and then trying to drop, excuse me, all the way to the table without restriction. If they can do that, then that tells me that their hips are in a neutral position. Most athletes are not not going to be able to do that, but whether they need to do that or not is very much individual, right? Some people never need to be able to do that. Other people have issues and I need to get them into more of a neutral position. So that way we can restore more genuine movement options and whether that's, you know, range of motion, whatever. After that, we can start to train them, right? So let me give you an example. Like, let's say I had some basketball player with back pain and most athletes are going to be pretty extended, right? So if you're extended, meaning like probably a lot of anterior pelvic tilt, anterior orientation, whatever you want to call it. When you go to do that that overs test, there's no way you're going to pass that test because your pelvis isn't neutral. So if I need to resolve some back pain, I probably want that overs test to become probably more neutral, or I want your pelvis to become more neutral. So you have to pass your overs test. And then from there, we can restore other measurements like your hip rotation, some shoulder stuff, but that overs test needs to be passed and I need to train you in more of a neutral pelvic position. And as that back pain subsides, you're going to probably become a little bit more and more and more extended from there. As you start to add more load, power, speed, all that stuff, you're probably going to go back to a more extended position. But my goal for you would be, let's not keep you in this extended position. Let's get you in some realm of being able to pass this overs test when you need to, not just being stuck in an extended position all the time because athletes are going to need to extend. Let's allow you to do that, but let's not have you be stuck there necessarily. So that's a big one. Um, I think a straight leg raise is a really important one because that tells you how much hip internal rotation is available at your pelvis, which is really important. Um, It also is reflective of your hamstring flexibility, but I think that's secondary to the position of your hip. And 
hip internal or external rotation are big ones. Uh, I would say hip abduction is another big one. Think about it like uh, the Obers test, you're pushing the femur down with abduction, you're lifting it away from the body. So you'd have them lay on their side and you straighten out the leg, you just try to push it up into abduction. And that's basically how well can someone get out of that hip, right? Whereas the Obers test is like, how well can you get into that hip? And you can't get into your hip if you're not neutral. It's gonna be hard for you to have full abduction if you're not also neutral. So it's like, can you get in, can you get out? That sort of thing. And then hip external and internal rotation are also reflections of that to a certain extent as well. At the shoulder, shoulder internal, external rotation are very basic. Shoulder flexion is really helpful. Um, all those shoulder measurements help me identify, like let's say you, know, you have someone that's really tight on the front side of their body, their internal rotation measurements are gonna be really restricted. If I have someone that's tight on the back side of their ribs, their external rotation measurements are gonna be really limited. So it's like, okay, you have back pain, the back of your ribs are really tight, your external rotation measurements are gonna be really limited. Oh, you have shoulder pain, the front side of your ribs are really tight, you have limited shoulder internal rotation. So that kind of gives me somewhere where to go with that. But for you know a big team sports setting, I don't work in that setting, but if I did, um, having the knowledge that I do now, I would probably keep it really basic because you don't have time to go in and take every single assessment with every single person. We have a semi-private model here. So we probably have somewhere between six to 10 people in this gym at once. And so I don't have time to take every single assessment on every single person. So the big ones that are important, if I'm in a hurry, are the ones that are relevant to that person. It's gonna generally be something like an Obers test, a straight leg race, uh, shoulder flexion, shoulder IR, ER. And those are going to be ones I work off of. And you can do all of those things on someone in probably 60 seconds. I love it. No, that, that clears up a lot. Now, take us to the next step of that assessment process. So let's say you take, you have a, you have a um, client athlete come in and you take them through some of those tests. Now, give us your thought process going from that test to now writing their program. Mm -hmm. So let's say you could even give us a case study of like, sure negative overs test, horrible straight leg raise and sufficient shoulder, whatever, however you want to do it. But now moving to that next piece of how does this guide your programming for that person? For sure. Okay. So let's say, um, I, I can tell you how I do it here. Yeah. So usually we have an initial consultation. I'll take their assessment. The first day they come in, Trevor will be out there with, you know, the rest of the clients that have their programs already. And I'll take them through several different drills that what works for them. So my goal for them would be to improve how they feel within their assessments. And then from there, if I know what works in a basic drill, I know what positions are advantageous for them gaining movement options back. I will then work to probably program exercises for them. I'm going to put them in that position. So one more based off that quick yeah. one. So would you use some of those exercise examples you've just given? Is that the bulk of their training session or is that a warm up? Is that a accessory movement? Is that the main lift? How do you kind of like organize those like specific movements for that person? It's a good question. I think it depends on how locked up they are and how much pain they're in. So those first drills we find, those are just warm up drills. For most people, they need to do them more than just two to three times a week to see progress because it's like, you know, how are you going to, how are you going to have things stick if you're just doing things twice a week? You know, you got to do something every day, like one set in the morning, one set at night, you know, like let's get you some degree of frequency. So you start to create some adaptations and that's what most people need for things to start to stick decently well. But if someone's got a ton of pain, a ton of issues, 
I can't have them do a bunch of heavy loading because if they're doing that, then it's like, you know, you're just going to revert back to whatever strategies you were using before, which got you to the place you're at now. So I need to have them do, you know, like that goblet squat to a 90 degree box as their primary lift for that lower push day, because they can't handle anything else. Or, and if they do, if I load them more than that, they're just going to, you know, lose the movement options that I've been trying to get them back with the warm up drills. But if someone's a decent athlete, they don't have a lot of pain or they have some pain, then it's like, okay, let's still see if we can train because I want someone to be able to do that to the maximum capacity of which they're able to do. So, you know, maybe instead of a barbell, high bar back squat, you're doing a Hatfield squat. And then you're doing that to a box and that's your primary squat. Or you're just doing that without, you're just doing a heels elevated Hatfield squat. Cool. You're able to keep your ribs over your pelvis way better in that position. You can lift it heavy. That's awesome. And that's a better choice than a high bar back squat for this athlete. Let's say we're talking about that basketball player with a bunch of back pain. So I'm trying to keep them out of a ton of extension. And as they progress through their program, all right, let's get you back to the high bar back squat. That's something that, you know, we feel is important for you. And then in a secondary block, maybe that's something like a split squat variation, right? maybe then we can load that a little bit heavier too, or depending on how much issues are present there, maybe we need less of that. You know, maybe we need less loading. It all depends on like how many issues are present and how much I can load them without flaring them back up or just having them revert back to where they were. But my goal is like the most possible amount of loading while still respecting the fact that if I give them too much, then we're just going to be back to square one. Got it. Makes sense. I love it. So like you kind of touched on it with part of that answer. And then also part of your previous answer was like the, the scalability part of it. You know, like if you were to take yourself out of your setting right now and put you into like a team sports setting and you have like, a, just like a general weight room program. If you had to try to create this again, would you like try to categorize athletes just like kind of buckets of movement deficiency? Like, Hey, we're squatting is our first block. These four athletes are going to be goblet squatting. These six athletes are going to be whatever they're doing. And that's just how you're going to take your entire lift slash year. I would probably put them into some degree of buckets. I know it's just, it's tough when you're in that setting to maximize the efficiency of things. So I think buckets probably is the best. Like I'd probably go something like, um, I know you guys have a question on infrasternal angles later. So maybe like a wide and a narrow infrasternal angle. And I mean, not every wide and narrow is going to present the same. So it's like maybe wides that need this thing and then narrows that need that thing and then have another group like a little matrix of four by like a two by two i guess that would be and you would have like wides that need this wides that need that narrows that need this narrows that that need that so that would kind of be a good way to break it down you can make it even more simple and just program like people who need external rotation more people who need internal rotation more and you can do like generally the same flow just break it up a little bit so for example um, if i had to bias an internal rotation I'd probably go, okay, these people are goblet squatting to a 90 degree box. These people are goblet squatting with the heels elevated ass to grass. And then you could go, okay, uh, let's say we need to bias external rotation on a split squat. Okay. These people are doing like a front heel elevated, um, front foot elevated split squat. And these people are doing a split squat with a hip shift. And then you can do like generally the same flow, but you have subtle adjustments depending on what they need um, for like, like an upper body, maybe you go like, okay, these people are going to do this kind of a press. These people are going to do this kind of a press or a row. And so it's like, you can have the same thing. Like these people are in a long seated position doing some sort of a lat row. 
these people are in a short seated position doing some sort of a lat row. And I think that way it's really easy to be able to manage things without having to change everything. And people can still feel like they're training together to a certain extent. Um, but it depends on like how much freedom I have, how many athletes are there. No, it makes sense. You've touched, you touched on it and it's something I'm, I'm really interested in is the, the ISA topic. Mm-hmm. Would you mind just giving us for our listeners who may not know just a really simple brief explanation in your terms of what this concept of ISA is? I think ISA is something that people intuitively sort of already understand. It's just being presented in a different way. So I think we can think of the average person who you'd look at them and say, you're more of a marathon runner. And the other person is like, you're more of a power lifter. Imagine a big spectrum of people. And so on one end, and these are extremes, everyone is somewhere in the middle. I'm just trying to draw an image right now in, in people's minds. So imagine the big power lifter or someone who's going to be a better power lifter than a runner. That's going to be more of a wider infrasternal angle person. Someone who's more of a marathon runner, narrow framed person is going to be more of a narrow infrasternal angle. So there's two ends of the spectrum too. There's force production, force absorption. So the wide infrasternal angle is going to be better at fast output and being just generally strong, like just raw force production, right? And narrow is gonna be better at absorbing force, generally speaking, that's going to be external rotation, whereas force production is internal rotation. So wide infrasternal angle is going to be someone who's better at producing force and internal rotation. So their internal rotation-based measurements initially will be better. And for a narrow infrasternal angle, they're gonna be better at external rotation. So it doesn't mean a narrow infrasternal angle can't become a power lifter and a wide infrasternal angle can't become a marathon runner. It's just that that you're going to have a bias towards being better at certain things. And so these are things we intuitively kind of understand. And so for me, I'm a wide infrasternal angle. So I'm really good at things that require force production and internal rotation. But if you put me on a cross-country program, I'm going to hate myself. So I'm a better deadlifter than I am a squatter. Whereas a narrow infrasternal angle, a squat is more of an external rotation bias move, relatively speaking, they're going to benefit more. They're going to have an easier time squatting. But the thing is, is that, you know, because a deadlift is more of an internally rotated position and a squat is more of an externally rotated position, a wide infrasternal angle is probably going to benefit more biomechanically from doing more squatting-like actions. And a narrow is going to benefit more from doing more deadlifty-like actions. So you generally want to fill in those gaps. But at the same time, like we are certain things than others. So do we really want to take away what we're naturally good at? Not necessarily. It's just that keep in mind for when you're programming for these people, like, yeah, let's get them and keep them good at what they're already naturally biased towards, but maybe we need to fill in some gaps by giving them things for, let's say for me, a little bit more external rotation bias, uh, because that's what I'm going to be lacking naturally. I got it. And that kind of takes me into my next question of the the programming aspects for the two and you already touched on one like a wide you might have more external rotation bias movements a narrow more internal just kind of like touch on the qualities that they might not have or be good at Mm -hmm. are there any other like immediate things that come to your head when you think of programming for the two body structures that you think are important that you would need to do for either whether it's training their superpower or touching their kryptonite yeah i think there's a couple of things to take into account let's take a wide versus a, a narrow infrasternal angle in terms of like 
jumping. So a narrow infrasternal angle, their pelvic floor is gonna have a harder time ascending, which is a position of internal rotation, whereas a wide infrasternal angle is gonna have a harder time descending their pelvic floor. So when you go into a jump, the counter movement, when you drop down, that's more of a yielding, that's a pelvic floor dropping action. Whereas when you go to actually jump and produce force, that is more, more of a concentric pelvic floor action. That is a pelvic floor rising. That's going to be, you know, force production, obviously, right? So with a narrow, you probably want them to train themselves to ascend their pelvic floor and produce force and produce that quickly in a way that's meaningful for them. So something like a seated box jump could be really good for them from like a 90 degree box. Whereas a wide, they probably need to learn to yield into the bottom of a jump, a counter movement. So you could do something like a heels elevated little squat where you have a kettlebell and you drop down into that, right? And then eventually you can work them into catching it and then releasing it and jumping, something like that. Uh, you, there's various degrees of hip flexion that you would be in depending on that person. Um, so for a wide, you might have them stay in a higher degree of hip flexion Whereas with a narrow, you might have them go deeper, depending on whether you want to bias internal or external rotation. So that would be something you want to think about in terms of the actual performance side of things. Whereas like getting into a cut, that would be more important for a wide, whereas getting out of a cut and producing force would be more important for a narrow. So things like that are, are where the performance side of things comes in. And I think that there's a lot of value for the infrasternal angle theory in performance. And that's, there's other things that go into it too. Like, are you structured like, you know, a traffic cone or are you structured like an inverted traffic cone, like a funnel? And those things also matter. And that can be independent of your actual ISA archetype as well. You can have both a wide and a narrow present that way. So like if you had, let's say you're uh, Nikola Jokic, he is more of a traffic cone presentation even when he lost weight dude still looks like he's just a silly playboy out of shape right? <laughs> so he is someone where his center of mass is naturally lower to the ground so he's not a great jumper right he's not very good at jumping he never will be no if you took him and dwight howard and put them on the same exact vertical jump program dwight will win every single time but because his center of mass is naturally lower to the ground you can imagine like a the example I really like is the spinning top. He's really good and quick, like deceptively quick at spinning. So Jokic is like a top, right? So he has a lower center mass. He can spin more easily. So if you go watch Nikola Jokic highlights and you go uh, like low post moves, there's some good stuff on YouTube about that. It's pretty crazy how fast that guy can turn and defenders definitely aren't ready for it. Um, whereas think about someone like Dwight Howard, who is like, Greek God sort of build, right? He's got like that funnel, broad shoulders, narrow waistline. So imagine like a big funnel of pressurization. So it's like a trampoline. So if you get fed everything down in this funnel, pressure goes down, bounces off the trampoline. So he has a crazy vertical jump for how heavy and big and strong he is. And so that's kind of the theory, right? That these big broad shoulder guys, these funnel guys, are just naturally bouncier and have better quick force production. And you can be a wide or a narrow with that. It's just a separate thing. So I think that's another interesting layer to it, but that's after we understand what the baseline of the wide and narrow ISA thing is. 
because then you have to combine those two things together. It's just it's kind of a cool wrinkle and it's pretty interesting how accurate it is when you see people move, understanding those archetypes. No, I, I hear you on that. And it's been something that I've kind of tried to figure out over the last little bit. And now I look at my guys and, and it's like inverted traffic cone, Dwight Howard. It's like, oh, you're probably going to be pretty springy. And then you see him in pregame warmups and it's just like, puts it, goes 360 easy. And then you guy that's like, you might be a traffic cone and he struggles to get off the floor. And like, in my opinion, that dictates so much almost in my limited like time of understanding this concept to a certain extent, 90% of the time, I feel like you can predict whether somebody's going to be bouncy or not. And that's obviously a little subjective, but there's big carry over there. I had, I had one question for you that I've thought about recently. Is there much worth or, or merit programming for the, for the middle ground of that spectrum? Or do you just kind of tailor things to like your extreme narrows and your extreme wides? No, I think that there's value for sure in the middle because everyone's ultimately going to be missing something and everyone is on one end or the other. There is no like um, perfectly square ISA. Um, and sometimes people present like that, but it's because they have layers of compensation built up. And so I think there is real value in understanding what that is for each person. I think the weight room stuff comes into hand a lot for that. Um, yeah, I think it's definitely worth thinking about that for just about everyone. Cool. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, um, general training goes a long way for people. And this is just a little extra thing on top that can be really helpful. But I think sometimes people can kind of miss the force through the trees with this stuff and get too into it and forget that like, hey, you know, like regular training works really well, regardless of what your ISA is. Gotcha. I like it. So <clears throat> kind of pivoting away from that just a little bit. One of the things that I want to talk about and we want to talk about was a little bit about foot function and kind of a broad question here, but like when someone has like dysfunctional feet as like terminology, like what are some like the first thing that come to mind as to like what that might mean? And then is there like a, a process that you could take someone through where you're like, my goal is to build someone's ability to be elastic in the foot or in the ankle that you want to get to. And this is highlighted more for me recently. I just spent like multiple hours doing video acceleration analysis for a, for a ball team. I had all the linemen and every single one on their first step, as soon as their foot hit the ground, their entire first two steps, really their entire ankle just collapses. And so every single person with the exact same thing, I said, foot collapses, foot collapses on every single one. And some like, they're very skilled, skilled guys, this spring into their ankles. Obviously if you're 320 pounds, it's a little bit different, but mm -hmm. when, when you hear the, the terminology, like dysfunctional feet, like what are some of the things that come to mind? And how do you build toward more um, robust elastic feet? Yeah, I think like, honestly, the, I've, the most benefit I've ever found for stuff like that is general basic plyometrics. Such a boring answer, but it really is the truth. And you can tailor that to wide, narrow ISAs, whatever. Like, but really, plyometrics and basic progressed things i found have gone a really long way for that. But I'm not going to give you that answer because I think it's really boring. <laughs> so there's two, different, uh, there's two different realms of this. There's the biomechanical side of things. And then there's the actual like tissue side of things more so. So biomechanically, it's like when I'm looking at the foot, generally speaking, depending on how someone's foot visually presents, you can get an idea for where they are. Most athletes are in a constant state of like they're pushing, right? Propulsion, 
get me force production, push me away from the ground, et cetera. So their feet are going to represent that. So when we push off and gait, you usually see the big toe move inwards towards the other toes. And you tend to see an external rotation bias. And you tend to see some other things happen throughout the tibia and upwards. So if you look at people's feet, generally athletes have a foot that literally looks exactly like that. Start looking at how many athletes' toes are moved off to the sides. It's because they're constantly in a state of propulsion. Bunions are another representation of this. So if someone's going to have a functioning foot, then they have to move through the gait cycle. Even when they're sprinting to a certain extent, they have to move from an early position to a mid-stance position to a propulsive state. Some representation of that has to happen. Basically, no matter how fast they're moving, it's just going to occur way faster than just normal gait, which is why I think gait's a nice way of looking at things because your foot still has to move through a position of yielding to propulsion. And so if your foot can't pronate and you can't get the right foot contacts, then that's going to be probably problematic for, for most people. But, you know, it's like, how far do you go there? Should you worry about other things? Like sometimes the foot is secondary to the position or a lot of times it is to the pelvis and rib cage. And if you clear those things up, the foot usually takes care of itself. But in some cases, the foot's driving the whole show. So usually what my approach is, let's hit the big rocks of the hips. Let's hit the big rocks of the rib cage. And then let's see what's left over at the foot. And a lot of the times you don't need to worry about it too much. But if someone has a foot specific issue, then that needs to be addressed for anything else to stick, for anything else to really matter. So at that point, it's like, all right, we need to look at what's the issue here. Is it the fact that your foot can't pronate? Is it the fact that you're too far forward on your center of mass and you're too far forward on your toes? You need to come back and sense more of your heels and then re-educate a better propulsion. Like it could be so many different things, but you also have then the tissue side of things. Something I've been messing around with uh, more and more is getting, and I can never say this word. It's a dyna, dynameter. Is that how you say it? Dynamometer. It's like one of those mental blocks I have. I can't say <laughs> that thing. Um, <laughs> so we've been using this tool. Uh, basically what it is, is you put your big toe on it. And then it's basically like an intrinsic foot strength test. And then you measure the other four toes. And you would be absolutely blown away at how weak people are just moving into flexion with their toes. So and is it how they pin it to the ground and then you pull? And I try and to it's... pull and it gives me a number. Gotcha, gotcha, and gotcha. Then ideally, you want like 20% of your big toe strength, 15% of your other toe strength. Hmm. And it's just really fascinating to see how weak people are, even very uh, elite athletes, supposedly. Um, so what are expected numbers on something like that like big toe into that little 20 of your piece of plastic 20 percent of your body weight okay 15 percent of your other four toes of your body weight most people don't even come remotely close to that and i've seen some pretty incredible things happen of doing this and then doing some specific uh, exercises to help improve this number and seeing people's like literally their shoulder internal rotation goes from like five to 90 degrees it it's some crazy shit to be honest with you Jeez, wow um, interesting yeah it's really really interesting i'm still working through the idea of why this works and how it works but it, it's just fascinating to me to see the changes that this can have on people's entire bodies like even their neck rotation changing uh, there's some specific exercises um, that a guy named 
Andrew Hauser, who might be an interesting podcast guest on this as well. Um, he turned me on to this. And it's just really cool to see that uh, just some isometric exercises can go a really long way um, towards improving people's intrinsic foot strength and toe flexion strength. And that leads to a lot of other things. I think the foot does drive the show a lot more than uh, people give it credit for, but I think you can also hyper-focus on the foot too much and then just like forget about everything else that matters. Um, but that's one thing that I think can lead to more of that elastic foot, so to speak, like Michael was asking earlier. Um, because if people have, I, I think weak feet is a very lame way of putting it because I think that feeds into some myths that, you know, people have perpetuated within the strength conditioning industry. I, I think weak feet is not the right way to put it. I'd say feet that don't integrate with the rest of the kinetic chain are pro is probably a better way to put that. And it's just cool to see what happens. I mean, I'm, I'm still working my way through this myself. So I'm not trying to be like present like an expert on this right now. Um, but I just think it's really interesting. It's something you guys might want to look into. No, that, that whole <laughs> idea with the dynamometer is there. I messed up the word too. Yeah. It's, that's that's really cool i love, like that idea i'm gonna have to mess around with that that's really cool yeah i mean i found like we i was at i was at tfc a couple weeks ago and like chris corfus talks about elite sprinters ability to like use their big time sprinting obviously and it's like if you watch most people sprint though like they'll start like their first few steps in acceleration their heel will be on the inside edge of their foot well their, their heel will be on the inside of their big toe and as they sprint it'll start to like turn their foot out and all of a sudden their heel will get to like over their pinky toe and like if you have most people just like do a cap raise, they'll just like roll onto their big toe and they'll finish with all their weight on their pinky toe. Well, like really good sprinters typically I've seen like are really good, just like a calf raise where they just stay over their big toe. Like 95% of the people when they go up into a calf raise, they just immediately fall onto their, their pinky toe. And like you just have them do like yeah. a heel to toe walk, they just fall onto their pinky toe, fall on their pinky toe. That's just what he was saying was I'm pretty sure, he, and he didn't know, I'm pretty positive that really good sprinters are really good at using their big toe slash all their foot. He's like, I'm pretty sure bad sprinters are not at all. And that's just like very anecdotally makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Based off that, and you, you touched on it, was bringing somebody back mm -hmm. and uh, if they're like in this propulsive state. So you, you, do you use the, this idea of early stance-based exercise? mid stance based exercise, late stance based exercise within your programming? I do, yeah. There's a very direct correlation between like, let's say, let's go back to the original example. It's just stay consistent, basketball player, super extended back pain. They're going to be in a late stance foot, like we talked about. They're going to be pushed forward and their center of mass. And so they're not going to pass that over test we were talking about. So we need to get them to bring their center mass back, which means that they're going to find more weight on their heels instead of just pushing forward all the time. So that way they can have more of a neutral pelvic position. Then from there, we can get them to start moving forward again, right? And I'm not saying like all their exercises are focused on them finding their heels. It's that relatively speaking, I want them to be in because propulsion is a positive shin angle, right? That's the shin moving over the foot into dorsiflexion. I want to bias more of a negative shin angle in a lot of their stuff. So I want them to move from, you know, they still need to move from external to internal rotation, but I can have them be in more of an earlier stance position with a negative shin angle and bias that with like front heel, front foot elevated positions, uh, things where they are basically shifting their center mass back. And that, that can be like a, gosh, there's so many different ways you can do it, but let's just, I'm biasing that type of thing. And as they progress through their program, okay, now you have more of a neutral pelvic position. Now I want to educate you on how you can 
move into an internally rotated position. And so I might bias more mid stance activities. And then I might bias more late stance propulsive activities after that. I had a very direct correlation between, let's say that basketball player, I give them a front heel or front foot elevated split squat and a rear foot elevated split squat. The front foot elevated split squat usually helps them maintain the adaptations I give them in their warm-up activities that help restore relative motion or it improves them. Whereas a rear foot elevated position, which pushes them forward and extends them more, takes it all away. It's very consistent. And it's something that something fun that you can experiment with. And so it's just like, hey, you're being pushed back into their propulsive position. And again, that for some athletes, training that is important. Like for your narrow infrasternal angles who can't produce force very well and suck at pushing off initially, that can be that rear foot elevated position can be really helpful for them. Whereas someone like a wide infrasternal angle, maybe like an earlier stance position because they're biased towards internal rotation, getting them back into external rotation can be helpful in earlier stance positions. So generally speaking, in some capacity, I either want to bring them from late stance to more of a mid stance position or late stance all the way back to an early stance position. And the whole like gait thing is, it's not like your body knows you're in early stance. Your body's like, oh, this is early stance. That way I, I when I walk now, I'm going to feel my heel better. It's like, no, it's just, that is a representation of the joint actions that are happening at your hip feeding down to your foot. And that is an external rotation position and representation of that. So therefore you're not going to be as biased towards pushing yourself forward. Like you are in a rear foot elevated position. So that's, that helps me a lot personally, because whenever I first heard of this concept, I was, what does it matter? Because I was just thinking the gait cycle, Mm -hmm. what does it matter to train? Like, uh, early stance position in a front foot elevated split squat. Like Mm -hmm. what does that matter? But um, I think that clears up a lot. It really just gives that person that might be pushed forward to a late stance, more movement variability and movement options, as opposed to just continuing to drive that like propulsion late stance. Yeah, Like a good example would be like that basketball player. (laughs) So I'm just going back to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love it. What are they going to do? You put them in a front foot elevated split squat their center of mass is being shifted off of the front of their foot on the lead leg. So they have more of that weight on their heel. So that way they can keep that stacked position. Their pelvis can stay like a neutral bowl of water. So it's not spilling out the front into extension. They can keep that better. But if you put them in a rear foot elevated position, their, their weight shifted more onto their forefoot naturally. So they're more likely to extend and they can't keep that stacked position. And so if my whole goal with my prep activities was to give them a neutral pelvis, why would I put them in a rear foot elevated position? Yep. I love it. All right, Connor, I want to be mindful of your time. So we'll get to our, to our last question, Mike, unless you had any other quick. No, you want to jump into it. All right. So last question we ask every guest and I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear your answer. Um, what is something that you do and or think that a majority of the field, let's say strength and conditioning, sports performance, this whole realm um, would disagree with? Hmm. I think my answer would be that people are less individual when it comes to the way that they present and what they need than most people think. A lot of people is like, everyone's an individual. Everyone's going to present very differently. Like, you know, you can't create like these cookie cutter things. You can't create assumptions based off of, you know, like you can't just generalize things. But what's helpful is that humans are still humans. Like we still have four limbs. We still have this asymmetrical layout of our body. So I think 
in terms of the mechanical side of things alone, I'm not strictly talking about the psychological components of pain and movement dysfunction. I'm talking about mechanically. People are a lot more predictable than I think most people give them credit for. Uh, and I think that that's actually a good thing because if I have someone that presents with locked up hips and they're a basketball player, then I kind of know where I probably need to look first, right? Whereas just kind of like throwing a bunch of stuff at the, at the wall and hoping it sticks or having to assess every little thing. It's like, okay, I probably know it's most likely going to be something like this based off of some of these assessments that we were talking about earlier. Now, things can get tricky when you start to throw in psychological components of it, um, social components of it. That's the biopsychosocial model, but strictly in terms of how people present, um, in terms of their movement options and range of motion, I think people are not that different from each other. Uh, and I think that you can, with some practice and uh, if you run some experiments and just kind of like see what people fit into what buckets, there are some generalizations that are pretty clear for most types of athletes and most types of people. And I think that that's a very good thing. And so therefore, you know, like I've had people tell me like, there is no correlation between people. Literally someone told me there is no correlation between exercises you give people and how they feel afterwards. Like this one, this one person said, I don't have any idea what exercises I give people are going to get them out of pain or what exercises I give people are going to improve their movement. I was like, well, that's, you're probably not a very good practitioner then, because if you have zero idea what's going to help people, then like, how does science work? Yeah. Like how, how do, how do you have any idea what you're going to give people? Because in that case, like I'm going to have someone stand on one leg and pat their head and rub their, rub their tummy and that might take their pain away. You know, like that's, to me, that's ludicrous. I think there's, yes, people have individualization. It matters. And it's important to take that into account. But at the end of the day, we are still humans and we all still, if you're a basketball player, you're going to be doing certain things more than others. And I think that that can give us some answers and places to start. I love it. Great way to wrap it up. Good. Great. Thanks, great way to finish. Great way to finish. Uh, Connor, for anybody that doesn't already follow you on social media, what are your uh, social media before we get you out of here? Sure. So uh, it's Connor, C-O-N-O-R underscore Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, another underscore after that. That's my thing everywhere. Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, the whole shebang. I love it. Well, we, uh, we definitely appreciate it. We know uh, you have to run here, but uh, yeah, thank you for your time. This was awesome. Thanks, yeah, Connor. thank you, Connor. Thank you guys for listening. Give us a like and a follow at MTN underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter and find us individually at Coach Mike Sully and at Hunter EIS underscore SP. See you guys next week.